Today's uh, class will be a continuation of our last month's class on the uh, beginning of Russian church history, which we talked about the conversion of Russia under uh, St. Vladimir and the Kievan period of the Russian church uh, prior to the Mongol conquest. We left off last time with the uh, conquest of Russia by the Mongols coming from uh, the area north of China and setting up their base. I'm a, my map here is a little fuzzy, but uh, kind of like that. Yes, <laughs> the Volga River. So they're based down here on the Volga at Sarai and ruling over uh, the eastern part of Russia. And then how Russia, Kievan Russia, became divided between two pagan kingdoms, the Mongols on the on the east and the Lithuanians on the west. And the difficulty, so you had these two pagan uh, countries acting acting as uh, protectors or in one case sort of overlords but protectors of the different uh, halves of what had been Christian Russia. Now, at this time the church was still, this uh, takes place about 1240 and the church is still under the Patriarchate of Constantinople which at the time is this is right after the Latin Crusade when the uh, Constantinople itself is actually under the, the Latin Empire, but the Patriarch of Constantinople is living over in Nicaea, right nearby. And there's an alliance formed between the, Patri- the uh, Empire of Nicaea and the Mongols, and that benefits Moscow, the church in Moscow, because the... Uh, uh, church people, the bishops and such, were able to go back and forth freely. It did make for a little bit of a problem with the Western Russians who were under Lithuania that this relationship existed. But the church in Constantinople was trying to balance the two. One of the the difficulties was whether or not uh, to allow, to try to keep the Church of Russia as one. The main uh, Byzantine policy was to keep Russia united under a single patriarch of this patriarchate of Kiev, or metro, actually, sorry, metropolitan of Kiev at this time. But this, of course, went contrary to both the uh, the political ambitions of both the Lithuanians, who wanted to have the metropolitan living in their territory, and the uh, princes of, of Moscow who wanted to have the church there. So they both were kind of aiming to monopolize the page, the, uh, the metropolitan either to have the control of the whole church or at least of the church of their territory. So for a while, uh, the Byzantines were able to keep the church united, but occasionally they had to give in and set up... Uh, Two things. One thing that happened after the conquest was that the, the old metropolitan of Kiev ended up uh, by 1305 resi- residing over in Moscow. And this meant that occasionally the uh, 
Constantinople would appoint separate metropolitans for the Lithuanians. And then when it looked, you know, when the, and, and the metropolitan would try and kind of go back and forth between the two, but then when it looked like the metropolitan was favoring the Lithuanian side too much, the princes of Moscow wanted to have their own metropolitan. There was a, so there were schisms kind of on the Moscow side as well from this unified metropolia. Uh, to try to have a sort of national church. In the end, um, several things changed that ultimately resolved this situation. One uh, was that the Mongols converted to, to Islam, and so instead of being kind of benign uh, pagans just sort of, uh, you know, living off of the Russian, they became kind of religiously hostile. And then you had the emergence uh, part of the Western Russians come, came under the uh, Polish, which uh, became kind of very belligerently uh, Latin or Roman Catholic, and this kind of these two pressures sort of were forcing some kind of changes. Um, one initially it looked like. The Lithuanians were afraid of the Polish as well, as much the Poland was, was kind of leading, in fact, what they called crusades. They had the sort of blessing of the Pope to launch crusades against, you know, the three enemies of the faith, the Lithuanians, the Russians, and the Mongols. Uh, you know, because the, they were all, you know, against what they, they saw at this time. Because remember, we're at the post-crusade period where the, we've, we've already had the Latin crusade and um, you know, when Michael recaptured Constantinople from the Latins, the uh, Latin church was not happy about that, and there were crusades, you know, the threat of crusades to try to take Constantinople back from the, from the Orthodox. Uh, so this, in this context, at first, Lithuania sort of tended more to the Orthodox side, and in fact, um, one of the kind of great final kings, Yagilo, uh he and his family became Orthodox, and there was a, a move to, uh, um, to to have a merit. And, and, and on the other side, in, in Moscow, there was a national movement against the Mongols, and there was uh, the Battle of uh, Kulikovo, I think. The, the uh, I'm going to get the name right, but uh, where they uh, defeated the Mongols, and then. In, in a little while after that, they, uh, yeah, Kulikovo, um, in 1380, they defeated them and, and gradually kind of were working their way free of, of Mongol domination. And at that, during that time, uh, the patriarch, or sorry, the Metropolitan of, of Kiev and Moscow was trying to bring about a marriage alliance between the Lithuanian royal house and the Moscow, which would have reunited, uh, Russia under a, you know, kind of joint uh, Orthodox kingdom. However, uh, Moscow, the princes of Moscow broke the alliance off and decided to just kind of go for themselves, you know, and, and keep uh, separate from Lithuania. And shortly after that, the Polish uh, royal house offered a marriage alliance to the Lithuanians to, so that the, they would inherit the kingdom of Poland if they would become Catholic, which they did in uh, 1386. 
this kind of uh, removed the ambiguity of having two states kind of acting as wanting to be sort of official protectors of the Orthodox Russian population because with the conversion to Roman Catholicism, uh, it was very hostile. They, uh, they had to be rebaptized as Catholics. They all, uh, Orthodox people either had to convert to Roman Catholicism or lose all their official titles and jobs in the state. Um, the, there, all marriages, marriages with Orthodox were forbidden after that. And there was a, you know, it was a very, because it was a sort of this crusading, they, the Orthodox were seen as the enemy along with the pagans and everybody else. They, they, you know, they were very punitive against the Orthodox. This, uh, well, this, so this made, kind of left Moscow, especially as it broke free of Islam, as, as clearly the one patron now of the, of the, uh, Orthodox Russian population. What unfortunately it also meant is that part of that population was going to be living in an, in not only a, another state, but in a hostile state. And this becomes the origin of the split that we have today between Russia and the Ukraine. Ukraine being, and you could say Belarusia also, as being the area of Russia, of the original Russia, that was under non-Russian, non-Orthodox rule. And that will work itself out in, in different ways, uh, but what happens is that the, uh, there is, there does become a, a metropolitan of Kiev at this point because the, uh, the kingdom of, of Lithuania, Poland, uh, you know, does definitely doesn't want to have anything to do with, with Russia. And so, at first, they metropolitan, they install a Roman Catholic metropolitan of Kiev, ultimately agree to have an Orthodox one, but it's separate. You know, so there, so you have, this is where the separate Ukrainian church comes from, as a, you know, uh, as opposed to now a, a formerly unified Russian church. Yes? Yes, Nicaea was the capital of the Byzantines uh, who, you know, when the, when Constantinople fell to the Latins, yeah. there were three successor states of the Byzantines. Oh, okay. So it's that, okay. it's that one. So this is before 1453? Yes, right. This is, we're talking about the period between 1240 now okay. moving up. Um, it's in this period that we talked earlier about the uh, the Kievan uh, the saints of the Kievan period, the the monastery at the Kiev, the monastery of the caves of Kiev, and so on. This period also has its spiritual tradition that was strongly linked to what was happening in in Constantinople in the 1300s. Although you know Constantinople was in very bad straits with the Turks all around and everything. This is uh, the time of Gregory Palamas and the victory of, uh, of Hesychasm, which is this uh, constant prayer, which is affirmed, you know, despite the kind of rise in interest in Western uh, 
Western philosophy and Western ways of looking at spiritual things, the kind of orthodox monastic tradition is affirmed in these councils in the mid uh, 14th century. Yes. Are you saying that the Yes. Um, it's, yes. Initially, well, it's under from the time of the Mongols, it was under Lithuanian rule. The Lithuanian rule became joined to Polish. Part of it was taken over by Poland too, but then they they combined. And it kind of it's a little complicated, but part and they become Roman Catholics as of 1386. Lithuania uh, goes from from pagan first to Orthodox and then to Roman Catholic. They're still predominantly Roman Catholic. The uh, well, Poland is yeah, and, and Lithu- I guess Lithuanians maybe, but there, of course, it's a little country now, as opposed to because uh, Poland essentially inherited uh, the the West Russian territories. Yes. Earlier. Well, it just depends on which we <laughs> think the Roman Catholic Church began and when. When it specifically became, uh, yes, I mean it, it was sort of connected to the Western. It was an outgrowth of Western Western Church, whereas the Russian Church was an outgrowth of the Byzantine Church, and uh, the kind of hostility to the East uh, began in the 1200s. You know, where the Polish saw themselves as rivals to the Russians, and. It's well. The Ukraine is Western Russia. Ukraine and Belarus are Western Russia, and Western Russia. The problem was that the Mongol conquest only got Eastern Russia. So the West Russians uh, were under West, you know, Lithuania and then Poland. And they're Roman Catholic. Yeah. So the Ukrainian church is Orthodox, right? Large. Well, yes, large. Partly. Partly. I mean, what happens is there's ultimately a unia. But there still is, there is a Ukrainian Orthodox Church and then there's a Ukrainian Unia Church, which evolves out of the situation. So ultimately, there's kind of both in Ukraine. Yes, right. There's essentially only Orthodoxy in Russia. Yeah. Only Roman Catholicism in Poland. Yeah. Both of these churches kind of. That's basically right. Poland, of course, the territory now, you know, has moved moved eastward and takes part of what was Western Russia. So there is an Orthodox population in Poland, in Eastern Poland. Yeah. Yeah. At this time, was the, the people of Ukraine still racially, ethnically, linguistically the same as Russians? Yes. The Poles were not. No, not exactly. They were, I mean, they're Slavic, but, they're, but they were a separate separate group than the Russians. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, we Catholic, so that's that would be likely true, yes. Yes, there's one over there. But well, Poland is very important in the life of Russian history, uh kind of the and the Russian church because of their uh influence <laughs> on so much of what happened. The um the Hesychast period, the most uh, famous uh, representative is St. Sergius of uh, Rodnez, and who 
began, so this practice of, uh, anchoritic monasticism living out in the wilderness that was going on, you know, had been going down on in the East for, since ancient times, uh, continued in Russia and you had across northern Russia, you know, a lot of, uh, anchorites and, and people. And this is a couple of books on this. One, uh, Northern Thebaid, published some years ago, uh, and has the, uh, introduction by Kostevich. Talks about the lives, basically a collection of lives of these, uh, starting with Sergius Rodnej and other, uh, wilderness dwellers. Yes? When you say northern Russia, you mean all the way over to the Pacific or only northern in this part? Well, uh, this time, of course, they were, it was northern European Russia and gradually they worked, you know, as time went on, they worked further eastward, but, uh, but they didn't get to the Pacific until much later. Okay, but right, so right now. We're talking about yeah, Northern European Russia. Okay. This is another book, Acquisition of the Holy Spirit in Ancient Russia by Kontasevich, um, that does well, til, deals with a number of things, but it's particularly the history of the monasticism there. There's a, St. Vladimir's has put out St. Sergius and Russian Spirituality by uh, Kovalevsky. That's also deals with this kind of heritage. This uh, included so all this, uh, let's say, wilderness monasticism included missionary work, translations into other lang- the native languages, so Stephen of Perm, uh, and also a kind of participation in the uh, what's called the Paleologan Renaissance in, in art, in terms of art, which was uh, so uh, Andrei Rubloff and uh, Theophon the Greek, I think, is, uh, is both part of that. Uh, Palamite period. And the, uh, after Gregory Palamas, the Patriarch of Constantinople, Philotheus, was a, who was a Hesychast, uh, appointed, you know, in appointing metropolitans and people for, for Russia, uh, Hesychasts, you know, were sent up, including, uh, Cyprian, uh, the Patriarch of Moscow and Kiev was a supporter of Hesychasm. So, uh, at this time, you know, even though it seems like, well, gee, there's all this, you know, they're feeling with the Mongols and trying to break free from the Mongols and they have the problems with Lithuanians. This is actually a, uh, still a very uh, rich time in terms of the spirituality of the Russian church. And that's something, basically, I always have to remember, you know, the, the history of Russia, or I guess the political history of any country, you know, tends to deal with wars and problems. And sometimes the the outward history of Russia can be particularly depressing. But, but the... Uh, you know, you have to remember that at the same time, uh, people were still living their lives as Christians and you have a lot of, uh, saintly people, uh, living, you know, holy lives and, and, uh, a society, in fact, that was, uh, influenced by the church to live a Christian life and great examples of piety at the same time as you might say, well, the ruler was doing something that wasn't very good. Uh, but that's just, that's just kind of life in the world, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if he did. He's about the same. Well, they're they're connected, but uh, whether in in the participation, but I am I don't know whether I don't know whether they did. Yeah. Okay. 
possible because of course they're contemporary and then uh, Philotheus, you know, who was the patriarch afterwards would have been during this time was a, was a disciple of Gregory Palma. So I'm sure uh, Gregory Palma's works were prominent.
it'll start, you know, kind of re restore relationships with the patriarchs of Constantinople after the Turkish conquest and they, they when they come back into orthodoxy, but um, it's kind of the beginning, the psychological beginning of an, not only an independence, but a sense of superiority of Russian orthodoxy over the Greeks whom they felt had lost the empire because they had betrayed the faith by submitting to the Latins. So it's, uh, Russian orthodoxy derived from this not only its, its own independence as a, as a country, but a sense that, that Russia had inherited the position of the Byzantine church and it was that it was now the sort of central church of the Orthodox world and the ruler was the replacement of the Byzantine emperor or in kind of the, the successors of the Roman emperors. Um, this ultimately, uh, when you get to Ivan the Terrible, you know, <laughs> I mean, in some ways this, this, these, this, uh, pride, I guess, will, will have some terrible results. But it did give the Russians, uh, a sort of self-confident sense of mission, too, that they were, you know, that what they were doing was important because they were the only ones left, mm-hmm. you know, and that they had to carry on despite the fact that the other people were perhaps Making compromises and things like that. Uh, yes. Uh, I was curious about what you said about uh, the Russians not considering themselves under the Constantinople themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they had a ruler in Moscow, right? Yes. But he didn't consider him like the emperor. No. I mean, he at the he. After the fall of Constantinople, he, he, Ivan III began considering himself the emperor. Um, he didn't. Uh, it's with Ivan the Terrible that you have kind of official coronation. But Ivan III also, you know, spoke of himself as, as the emperor, and the uh, there was a, a kind of coronation of him as well that sort of seems to imply that he was seeing himself as the successor of the Byzantine emperor. In Charlemagne's case, I mean, this was deliberate. <laughs> you know, he it's a it's a you know he wanted to replace the Byzantine emperor as being seen as the legitimate emperor in the West. Um, you know, despite supposedly his reluctance, I mean, he wanted to um, undermine the credibility of of the Byzantine emperors. You know, before his even before his coronation as emperor. Yes, so. Daughter or niece? Yes, that's right. And so there was a of the last Byzantine emperor. So there was a uh, sense of right that he, you know, in marrying her, uh, that he was carrying on the dynasty of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, although he argues from the uh, back to Prince Vladimir marrying the daughter of uh, Basil, of the Emperor Basil. Well, uh, by this time, of course, the empire was gone, so, and uh, Russia was, you know, a wealthy patron, 
to the Greeks under the Turks. So I don't know what they thought. They didn't complain too much about it, I guess, once once that had happened. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, the in the uh, early days of the uh, the new kind of independent Russian church, there becomes a uh, a, a little battle that goes on. And it shows some of the maybe it's the directions the things are going. One of the things that happens is that under you know you would think that well okay now Russia you know the third Rome and all this well this would mean, wouldn't this mean that the Metropolitan of Moscow now you know has a very prestigious important position? Not as much as you would think. Before when he was the representative of the of the Byzantine Church and had kind of jurisdiction on both sides of the border and was representing the Christian emperor as well as the patriarch of Constantinople, the patriarch, the metropolitan of Kiev and Moscow was a kind of super national figure. In other words, so his authority went beyond the local prince and the church had a great deal of independence. At this point, when the church, you know, sort of sees the Byzantine Empire is falling away, uh, at least temporarily. That uh, and and the patriarch, you know, the metropolitans of Moscow were limited to the territory of Moscow, who is now an independent uh, country. In fact, it made the metropolitans have less authority because they were more dependent on that metropolitan and I mean on the princes. And the princes, the princes of Moscow were very ambitious and wanted to press, you know, their own authority. So. Ultimately, uh, well, you could see Ivan the Terrible as an aberration. In a way, he's a kind of logical conclusion to uh, this sort of, well, you could maybe uh, kind of aggrandizement of the role of the of the Prince of Moscow as the replacement of the emperor. Uh, in a way that you know was not consistent with, in the Byzantine Empire. Still, the emperor, you know, had to be responsible to the church and to the people of the empire. Uh, the the Princes of Moscow, you know, especially again, kind of exemplified by Ivan the Terrible, uh, saw their authority as kind of surpassing all these other things, and that led to a, a crisis with him. But uh, well, we'll have to go for that next time. But the uh, this, the controversy that's coming up before Ivan the Terrible is the controversy of the possessors versus the non-possessors. And this is uh, the non-possessors were the heirs of this hesychastic movement of Sergius of Radonezh, and they were the monks up in the north. And the original issue was not uh, connected to property, but was connected to the uh, there was a heresy called the Judaizers, which was essentially Unitarians that were in Novgorod, and the uh, the possessors were influenced by the Western churches. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Inquisition, and thought that this was great, you know, that what, that the state needs to, uh, you know, burn all these people at the stake. And this is what the church, you know, has to work with the, in the prince to do all that. Well, that the non-possessors who were the inheritors of Byzantine hesychasm said, well, no, your church, you know, we're, we don't burn people at the stake. That's not, uh, that's not Christian, you know, we don't, so they didn't want to have persecution. So you actually have this kind of beginning of a conflict between the old Byzantine heritage of monasticism and the Western uh, 
influence, which in this case, beginning with the idea of the uh, interference of essentially of the state into church matters and particularly the use of force and compulsion to enforce uniformity in, in doctrinal matters, which is not uh, something we uh, normally embrace, but this is, but that's, but I mean, we don't, in a way, the non-possessors were right and in, in the, they were the, you know, in saying, well, this is not something that the church should be doing or the state, should, Christian state should be doing. But, but they, they lost. <laughs> the, uh, ultimately, the, possess, the, the possessors won out and, and the, uh, but there was also the issue of, of, uh, monastic property, in which case, in that situation, there's actually a tradition on both sides in the Byzantine church uh, of monasteries that had property in the cities that were used for charity, and then you had your anchorites living in the desert that did not have property. And so both really reflected the different aspects of our tradition, but the possessors uh, got the uh, support of the czar, and the non-possessors were persecuted uh, for a while. But we'll we'll end there and we'll pick up with uh, Ivan the Terrible next time. Thank you. Did you have any questions? Cyril and Methodius. I mean, they they were up when, when they went up to uh, Moravia. The Germans saw that as an infringement on their territory. Uh, of course, the, it was a different kind of infringement. It was an infringement of bringing translations and in their own language. That's a part of the heresy of Roman Catholicism that we don't talk about usually. But the the uh, opposition to language, having the scriptures and services in their own language, and ultimately in the Catholic Church, the um, Rejection of allowing lay people to have the scriptures at all, you know, which uh, which we didn't have in the Orthodox because we don't because it's not part of Catholicism as we see it today. But in the medieval period, uh, Catholicism became quite restrictive uh, of kind of cl- centralizing everything into the clergy, and that's we don't that's something the Orthodox Church didn't do. Okay, anything else?